They mount the stairs warily and they stand beneath the spotlights uncomfortably and before them are five stony-walled faces. It's actually one of my favorite TV programs, Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den is a show where budding entrepreneurs seek investment in their projects. These would-be businessmen or sometimes business women pitch their latest business ideas to some well-heeled and well-connected business moguls, otherwise known as dragons. And the stakes in this are very high. If the pitch goes well, they will receive thousands of investment pounds and also the help of the investor dragon. But if the pitch goes awry, if it goes badly, then the project lies in ruins, usually. As we continue our sermon series this morning, Restoring the Ruins, we find today something akin to a man entering the dragon's den. Nehemiah, an exiled Jew, has an audacious building project to pitch. His proposal is to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. And while he has already some resources for this, he already has some funding in place from the king of Persia. Nevertheless, Nehemiah still requires the investment of time and toil from the people of God. And so, in the passage we're looking at this morning, he bids for help. And he says in the words of verse 17 of chapter 2, let us rebuild. That's his pitch, so to speak. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So let's turn there again. If you have closed your Bible, reopen please to Nehemiah 2. We've already read these verses, so we'll not reread them. And let's consider verses 11 through 20 of chapter 2. And I simply want to observe three things that Nehemiah does, three things that he does as the story unfolds. The first is this, surveying the task, surveying the task. Now, you recall that when we left Nehemiah last time, his building project was gathering momentum. It was building up. It was snowballing in speed. Indeed, we can imagine Nehemiah just brimming with enthusiasm as he travels now to Jerusalem. I mean, already he has received planning permission for his building project. Already God's gracious hand has been upon Nehemiah and has caused a pagan king to provide for Nehemiah protection on the way to Jerusalem. Already this same king has given Nehemiah a blank checkbook. He's opened the, the king's forest to him, and he said, take whatever resources you need. And therefore, we might well imagine Nehemiah being a little exuberant as he comes to Jerusalem. You know, a little bit excited as he arrives in the city. You could imagine him coming in, trumpeting the fanfare. 
You can imagine him maybe calling a press conference and making a grand arrival. And yet you notice that Nehemiah does none of these things. What Nehemiah actually does, he records rather mundanely in verse 11. I went up to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, he comes with all of this going for him, and the first thing he does is nothing. He just stays three days in Jerusalem. He, he, he's waiting there in the city. Now, it's probably significant that Nehemiah has just completed a substantial trip from Susa, where he was, to Jerusalem, was a distance of around 800 miles, and probably took him something like two months to complete the journey. And so we could probably assume that Nehemiah is pretty exhausted after this journey. He's pretty tired. And, and bear in mind as well that he's about to embark on a 52-day non-stop building project. Well, I think he's a pretty sensible fellow for taking a rest. He certainly was a, was a workhorse, Nehemiah, but he wasn't always working. I wonder if some of us who know how to work really know how to rest. And yet we know that leaders who don't rest don't last very long. Nehemiah spent three days out gathering himself together, building up his strength, and maybe too, earning some credibility with the locals. Again, we must remember that Nehemiah, though he was a Jew, was also an outsider to the city of Jerusalem. He'd never visited this city before. And so it may be that he is being sensitive to the local situation. True, he has been appointed by the king of Persia as the governor of Jerusalem. He has authority. He has position. Yet it is also true that he is nonetheless an outsider. A commentator, John Kitchen, comments, he knew that a newcomer has a great advantage and a great disadvantage. A newcomer's advantage is that he sees things differently than those who have been embroiled in the situation for a long time. The newcomer's also possesses a major disadvantage. He has no grounds for suggesting change. So if you are that new person on the committee at church or the new person on the committee at work, you must bear in mind that while you have important new ideas to share, nevertheless, no one likes the new kid on the block coming in first day in the office and telling everyone what the problems are and what to do about them. Nehemiah bides his time. He's very wise, waiting in Jerusalem for three days, resting up. But next, also notice what he does after three days, inspecting. Nehemiah suddenly springs into action after these three days. Now, at this stage, he's not going public with his plans. He's not yet ready to publicize everything to the leaders or indeed to anyone else. It's rather like if you enjoy spooks or one of these programs, it's rather like a sort of MI5 uh, kind of situation. You know, secret agent Nehemiah on a covert op. I set out during the night, verse 12, with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. See, up to this point, Nehemiah has only heard reports 
of the destruction of Jerusalem's walls. And so now he goes out to inspect the walls for himself, to see with his own eyes what the damage is and what repairs will be required. And he sets out at night. He sets out only with a few men. And he sets out, as we saw, with only one mount. All these things were to make sure that no attention was drawn to what they were doing. He heads out the gate and goes round the walls in a counterclockwise direction. Heads out the valley gate. He goes south uh, to the fountain gate. And as he turns north, he finds that there's some broken rubble. I mean, this city is at, walls are in an absolute mess. And so he has to simply go by foot further north, examining each and every stage of the wall. And then he turns back, and he re-enters by the valley gate. Now, why are, we, why are we given all this information? Well, simply this. It's to show us that Nehemiah was gathering the data. Nehemiah wasn't just plunging into the project. He was first surveying the task. He was checking out the lie of the land. When the time comes later for him to make his proposal, it is key that he really knows what he's talking about. And so that when he gets the green light to go, he's actually ready to go. You notice in the next chapter, they just spring into action because Nehemiah's got the plan worked out. Now, it's stressed, of course, even here, that no one knows about these plans but Nehemiah. Verse 16 emphasizes, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or to anyone else who would be involved in the work. He knew they didn't. Why the secrecy? Because leaders should not unveil a plan that is half-baked, that is not thought through thoroughly. That's why sometimes they must remain private before they become public. And that can be a burden for leaders, of course, as they go through a period of planning, as they perhaps become very excited about a project or something that's about to happen, but they can't share it just yet. Because many a plan has fallen foul of a lack of preparation. I'm reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember during his ministry here on earth, he did not tell the disciples immediately what the plan was. Jesus knew from eternity past what the plan would be to go to the cross. And yet little by little, bit by bit, he sort of drip feeds the disciples something more of who he is. And when they come to the realization that he is the Christ, then and only then does he roll out the plan to them. In Mark 8, verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and rise again. This was an utterly surprising plan. To Peter, it was a diabolical plan, but Jesus had long known about the plan. He had thought it through. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that he considered both the shame and the joy before he went to the cross. And so it is here that Nehemiah thinks through the plan. 
Proverbs 21 verse 5 says that the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. We cannot be hasty in the unveiling of plans. We must be diligent. Some years ago, I recall uh, going on a, a Christian summer camp. And we went, there was a group of about maybe 12 of us, and arrived at a, a church. We were there for a two-week mission. We were very enthused and, and ready to work, very excited. And yet, it became very clear that there hadn't been much reconnaissance done to this church. And that there hadn't been much investigation into what we would be doing. And so when we arrived, all the things that we hoped that we would do and were ready to do, the church didn't need us to do. And eventually we found some alternative things, but it was a bit of a, of a dog's breakfast, really. See, planning is very important. We must survey the task in any ministry before we do the task. Now, this leads to a second thing that Nehemiah does as the story continues. Firstly, surveying the task. But then the time comes for Nehemiah to sort of roll out his plan. So the second phase in his bid is this, motivating the workers. Motivating the workers. John Maxwell, who is something of a leadership guru, uh, says this. He says, people do not follow a dream in itself. They follow the leader who has that dream and the ability to communicate it effectively. And Nehemiah was such a leader. Nehemiah was a man who had a dream, and he had a way with words. He had a, a way of persuading people and getting them on board for the task. And this is what we find happens in verses 17 and 18. That Nehemiah suddenly calls the people together, and he embarks on a persuasive speech. Its aim is to motivate unemployed workers and to get them employed in rebuilding the wall. And make no mistake, this is no easy task. This is not a very motivated bunch of people that Nehemiah is speaking to. Many of these same folks had previously invested their time in this very project. In the days of Ezra, they had begun rebuilding the walls. And God's enemies had intervened in the situation, and the project had faltered and failed. And so Nehemiah is going back to these same folks and saying, I've got a wonderful idea. Let's rebuild the walls. You know what they're going to say. We tried that before, and we failed. And yet Nehemiah does the hard sell in this section. It's a wonderful example of persuasive, motivational leadership. He says, let's build First of all, because of the present problem. Verse 17, then I said, you see the trouble we are in. It's usually the first place to point people to. What lies in front of their nose? He says, look, we're in trouble. The word trouble here has the idea of, of being evil. Look at the evil we are in. And what is this evil? It is that Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned by fire. Now, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Why does he call this an evil? I mean, if you have a section of your house that needs a bit of renovation, if you, that's really in a bit of a mess, you might think it embarrassing, but you wouldn't necessarily call it an evil. 
But this is an evil. It's not just an embarrassment that the walls are broken down. And I think the reason is this, that because Jerusalem's walls are broken, it lies wide open to any evil invasion, to any evil army just marching in and doing whatever they please. And so he says, we have this present problem. We need to do something about it, folks. Secondly, he adds, we need to build because of the future prospect. From the present, he turns to the future now. Verse 17 again, come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Presently, we're in disgrace. Presently, we're defenseless. Presently, we're easy pickings. At the moment, our surrounding neighbors, they all have walls around their city. They are all protected. And here we are. And it's a shameful thing as we sit with all this rubble lying around. Nevertheless, says Nehemiah, and he paints a picture of the future here. Imagine a day when we finish the wall and we will no longer be in shame. We will no longer be in disgrace. He's painting a picture of what the future could be. Isn't this exciting, says Nehemiah? that Jerusalem, ordained to be the joy of the whole earth, could once again again be that once more. Build because of the future prospect of a shameless city. Build because of the the present problems of a dilapidated city. And then he, he adds something thirdly. Build because of the past provision. You notice that Nehemiah appeals here to the the present, the future, and the past. It's interesting that he goes to the past last as well, isn't it? I mean, this is chronologically out of order, but he leaves the past to the end because it's the most rhetorically compelling, I think. And what he says is that in the past, up until this point, God has been managing this project. God has been making things happen. And therefore, God's going to bring it to completion. He says in verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. He retells of what King Artaxerxes had had miraculously told him, you know, when he gave him permission and he gave him protection and he gave him all the provision. And he said God's hand was evidently in that. And if that is true for the past, then that will be true for the future. Isn't that a great thing? That as we contemplate putting our hands to the work, that God's hand is already on the work. God's hand is already on the work of this church. That is something most evident as you survey the history of this church. This church is God's work. This church is bigger than any of us here this morning, bigger than any of the leaders of this church. We know this because God has been gracious in the past and he will be gracious to us in the future. Well, the plan was so clear. It was so stirring that the the people immediately answer the call. They immediately take up tools and they're ready to work. Just as we are called not to build the walls of Jerusalem, yet we are called to build the church of Jesus Christ. We know that the Lord Jesus is the chief architect. He said, I will build my church. 
And yet he graciously calls each one of us, if we are Christians, to up our tools and to help rebuild the church. By evangelism, as we share the gospel with people, and as the church increases in number and in size and in stature, and in discipleship, as we teach one another, as iron sharpens iron, and as we're built up in the faith. I wonder if we are involved this morning in this building project that Nehemiah also called God's people to. Now, Nehemiah also does a third thing as well. And the third thing is this, answering the critics. Answering the critics. It's pretty much a maxim, isn't it? that whenever God's people step out to do God's work in response to God's command, God's enemies will be right there to meet us. Isn't that true? We sang uh, in that song just a moment ago something of the church on the battlefield. You know, when the church arises, so does the enemy. We know this to be true. And we need to ask ourselves, if we don't feel as if we're in a battle as a church, if we don't feel as if we're in a battle as an individual Christian, maybe it's because we're avoiding the battlefield. It's when we attack the castle of the enemy that we find the arrows getting shot on us, that we find the the boiling pitch being poured down upon us, so to speak. And so it is here that right on cue, as the people up the tools to do the work, to build the that the people of God, once again, that the enemy suddenly comes out of the woodwork. And we meet these uh, three individuals, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. That's their names. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah we've met before in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. You remember they were disturbed just to hear that Nehemiah was in town, that he had any kind of a vision for the city. And then we're also told, not just their names, but their constituencies. Sanballat governed Samaria. That was just to the north of Israel. And no doubt he didn't want the kingdom south of him to be strengthening itself and increasing in stature. Tobiah was an Ammonite. The Ammonites were avowed enemies of the Jews throughout their history. The Ammonites lived just to the east of Israel. And then we have this fellow Geshem, And he was probably a Persian delegate who was appointed to lead the the tribes to the south of Israel. And then we also know that, of course, the Mediterranean was on the west of Israel. So we get this picture that, that God's enemies are surrounding God's people to the north, to the east, to the south, with the Mediterranean to the west. I was having a laugh this week because usually commentators aren't that witty. You know, biblical scholars, they're very dry Uh, But one of them actually quipped something I thought was quite good. He said, Nehemiah was caught between three devils and the deep blue sea. (laughs) And so here are these enemies. They're surrounding God's people. And in verse 19, we learn about their weapons, which are ridicule and mocking. They mocked, they ridiculed. They said, what is this? What is this you are doing? As if it's a silly thing. Here they are making fun of Nehemiah and his friends, making sport of God's people. It's not a new phenomenon. It's as old as Nehemiah. I don't know what the specific words are nowadays, 
that you get thrown at you at high school. But I certainly know that in my day, if you nailed your colors to the mass for being a Christian, there were certain words and phrases that were quickly banded in your direction. We shouldn't underestimate the power of ridicule. It's a hurtful thing. It's a hurtful thing even for those of us who are adult and mature. At the same time, we shouldn't overestimate ridicule either. I love someone has defined ridicule in this way. They said, it's the weapon of those who have no other. You know, if someone's throwing mocking words at you, they probably don't have a sensible argument to throw at you. They're simply calling you names. What is this you're doing? And then the latter question, I think it's a little more sinister. Because they then ask, are you rebelling against the king? Now, this was the charge, if you recall the history, that was brought against God's people the last time. They had gone, these enemies, to the king of Persia, and they said, as soon as these walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, you know what's going to happen? Israel's going to rebel against you. And so here they come again, and they're sort of insinuating that the same thing's going on. It's a veiled threat. They're suggesting that even though the king of Persia has given preliminary permission, maybe they'll be able to subtly convince him again that these folks are in rebellion. It's bully tactics. It's, It's intimidation. And I don't think there's any question about it. We live in a time when the sense of being intimidated is increasing for those of us who are Christians. Did you see the report last week in one of the newspapers? It was an interview with Jeremy Vine, the BBC presenter, and he was speaking of how challenging it is to be a Christian in the media. He was speaking about the opposition he feels in the sphere of the media. He said, for instance, that he would feel totally uncomfortable about talking about his faith on his show. Sadly, he said to quote him, it's almost socially unacceptable to say you believe in God. And so what happens? We don't speak about God. We don't share the gospel. We don't say that we really believe this book as the authoritative word of God. Because we know what people are going to say. What should our response be to those situations? What was Nehemiah's response? Well, I love the fact that he first of all says something about God. He keeps his eyes fixed on the Lord, not on the critics. And the first thing he says is that God will grant us success. It doesn't really matter what the mockers say. We know that God is bringing history to its great conclusion with the kingdom of God being established. Then he adds, secondly, and we will start rebuilding. God will grant success, but we, for our part, will start to rebuild. You know, that's the best response to intimidation. Just keep on building. Just keep on doing the work of God. Keep on speaking about Jesus. Keep on praying. Keep on discipling. Don't let the world freeze you by its fright tactics. And then notice a third thing Nehemiah says. Something about God, something about we, the people of God, and something about you. He says to God's enemies, you 
have no share in Jerusalem. You have no historic right to this city. You see, these guys were trying to weasel their way in. Uh, We know from other sources than the Bible that Sanballat and Tobiah apparently gave their children Hebrew names. They called some of their children after the Hebrew God Yahweh. And why did they do that? Wasn't it because they were really worshipers of the Lord God? No, it was surely because they were trying to curry favor with the Jews. They were trying to subtly begin to exert their influence and extend their territory, maybe eventually to rule over this little patch of land themselves. Then along comes this man, Nehemiah. You can see why they were so upset. He says there's a new governor in town with authority, not just with the authority of the king of Persia. That's not what he appeals to here but with the authority of the Lord God himself, a God who is in ultimate control. And guess what? I'm going to rebuild these walls with the people's help. And let me tell you something more. When it is rebuilt, you have no share to it. You have no right to it because you are God's enemy. You are not part of the people of God. Nehemiah is demarcating God's people from God's enemies. He is separating out those who are the Lord's and who are entitled, therefore, to all the possession that God's people are endowed with, and those who are out with that and therefore devoid of those blessings. You know, it sounds a very hard thing to say today, but that same dividing line is a reality as we come into our sphere of history. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ in... Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus himself speaking. And he said this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he, Jesus, will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Wonderful blessings for God's people here. Even much more than the earthly Jerusalem. Every spiritual blessing in Christ that we have. Forgiveness, redemption, heaven, joy, peace, all the wonderful things. But then he will say, To those who are on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, this is not something that you can come into by your own qualifications. You can't become one of God's people this morning. You can't inherit these wonderful blessings of eternal life by the things that you do. That's why in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, it speaks of those who are qualified by God. God is the one who qualifies us to inherit all of these blessings. And he does it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world as one who was qualified in every way, as one who was perfect in every respect. Jesus went to the cross, and he died there as a perfect sacrifice for our sins as our substitute in our place. 
so that we might enjoy these wonderful blessings. The Lord Jesus Christ was surrounded by his enemies too. We think of that occasion on the cross when the Lord Jesus was ridiculed for our sins. When they said to him, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. When they said, you saved others, now save yourself. Do you know how Jesus answered his critics? He died for his critics. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross for God's enemies to make these mockers forgiven people if they would accept him, if they would turn to him, if they would repent and put their trust in him. I wonder this morning, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only basis of that which can bring you from the kingdom of darkness, which has nothing but curse for you, into the kingdom of light, which has nothing but blessing for you. At the beginning of this talk, I talked about Dragon's Den. The most popular phrase on Dragon's Den, some of you will know what it is, is a negative thing. The dragons frequently say, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out of the deal. I'm not investing. Sometimes, though, they say something more positive. They say, I'm in. I'm in. And they get up off their seat, and they shake hands, and they make the investment of their time and their money. Ultimately, this passage is a challenge for us to make a decision. It's a challenge for us to rebuild the church of Jesus Christ, and the question is this, am I in or am I out? First of all, am I on his team? Am I in his kingdom? Am I part of that people of God? I can only be that way through Christ, through his death for me. You need to accept that this morning if you're not a Christian. But secondly, if we are Christians, we must ask this, am I investing my life in the church of Jesus Christ or am I simply living for myself? You know, there are too many Christians who opt into Jesus, but opt out of the church. That is a false dichotomy that the Bible never makes. We're going to sing a hymn in a moment. And I guess the test of it is whether you can sing this hymn with all your heart. It's a hymn by Timothy Dwight. He was the one of the presidents of Yale University. And he wrote this hymn about the blessed church of God and the pleasure of serving that church. He said, I love thy church, O God. I wonder if you can sing that this morning. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. It's not hard to go through life pulling down churches, criticizing churches, sitting on the fringe. It's a much harder thing, a much nobler thing to up your tools and to invest in the rebuilding work of God's kingdom. Are you in or are you out?
Let's pray.